we live in a world where everyone and everything about them is special, extraordinary, really. At least that's the public image that we like to project for ourselves and our lives on social media. Little Billy's an amazing student. Uh, little Jill is a, a, a great soccer player. Jack is an incredible dad. Jenny, she's an incredible mom. And we've got, you know, the social media posts that we have curated and cultivated to back all of that up. Well, I have news. The only thing amazing and incredible about the vast majority of us is how amazingly ordinary and incredibly average the vast majority of us are. And the very idea of that, frankly, is offensive uh, to, to our modern sensibilities, debilitating, really, because we ask ourselves this question, how will I ever matter to anyone? How will I ever matter for anything if I will never rise above average, if I'm never anything more than ordinary? Well, as you think that, what if I were to tell you that God's best work comes through people who are amazingly average and ordinary? I want you to keep that thought in mind as we go to our passage today, Exodus chapter 3. Why don't you find Exodus 3? The, the event recorded for us in Exodus 3 and most of Exodus 4 is Moses' encounter with God at a burning yet miraculously unconsumed bush. The event is deeply ingrained in our cultural memory, even if we aren't all that connected to faith. You'll even hear people who have no connection to faith whatsoever talk about an event in their lives that was kind of what they call a burning bush moment, a key moment where their lives are changed forever. And that is certainly an accurate description of what we see happening in Moses' life in our passage today. But today I want to really spend time thinking about why this is true of Moses' life. Why was this such a key moment beyond the obvious? Why was his life changed forever by this encounter beyond the obvious? To get to the answer, we, we may have to move past what we think we know about Moses, about God, uh, about who God uses for his work. And, and to get to the heart of what this passage will mean for us uh, will require that we move past what we think we know about ourselves and about God and about who God uses for His work. There is a lot of good stuff here this morning, and I hope that we can begin to see it as we dive in, beginning in verse 1 of Exodus 3. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Don't you love biblical understatement? Looky there. A, a bush that is burning and yet not being consumed. I will turn aside and see. I, if it were me, I'd go, look, Julie, look at that. I digress. Anyway, Moses just turned aside. 
And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, okay? (laughs) That's not something you need to explain to me, I think, in this situation. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, that I get, for he was afraid to look at God. And so begins Moses' life-changing encounter with God, the context of which is important for us to grasp before to understand what really is transpiring here. And to do that, you've got to get your mind around not Moses, the world-class leader whose exploits we are talking about 4,000 years later. You have to get your mind around Moses, the goat herder. We've already seen how God's fortunes have been imparted to Moses throughout his life. As an infant, he had escaped the death that Pharaoh had decreed for the other male Hebrew children. He'd been adopted into the royal family after having been found by Pharaoh's daughter and taken in as her own child. He had escaped death at the hands of Pharaoh again as he avenged the death of a Hebrew slave by killing an Egyptian. And he had found safe haven in the company of a desert priest who had given him one of his daughters as a wife And with her, he had started a family. And so all in all, things had had ended up working out pretty good for Moses. I mean, he was, he was a resident foreigner among people who were not his own. But his life, I mean, let's just be honest, it was far from cursed. In fact, one could even argue by the world standards at the time, he he was in tall cotton. And yet in the lap of all of this privilege, Moses settled into the life of an anonymous, nothing special, ordinary goat herder. Before this encounter, Moses, the extraordinary leader, was Moses, the guy who took care of his father-in-law's goats. Without this encounter, he would have ended up being one of the anonymous extras in history's plot, like, frankly, most of the rest of us. But make no mistake about this moment in Moses' life. It was a bumpy encounter for him. God tells Moses that the reason that he has come to meet with him is to call him to go back to Egypt and demand on God's behalf that Pharaoh the most powerful leader in the world, release the Hebrew slaves to God because those slaves actually belong to God and not Pharaoh, to which Moses says, who am I to do that? I'm a goat herder. And I want you to look at God's response. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Yes, God says, you're just a goat herder, but I'm God. And you will come back with the slaves that I'm sending you to, and you and the slaves will worship me on this very mountain, to which God says, well, who are you? Uh, let's, let's just say he's going to regret he asked the question. But he says, who are you? How will these people 
of Israel, believe me. And I want you to look at God's response in verse 14. We've already read it once this morning. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, folks, this is one of the most important statements in the Bible. So let's, let's linger here for a moment and appreciate what is happening. The first bit, I am who I am, is not God's answer to the question, who shall I say sent me, what's your name? But it is instead something of a rebuttal to Moses' attempt to sidestep what God is asking him to do, which will serve him the rest of his time in this encounter. Moses has twice essentially said, who am I? He will ask it again as we go. And God here is saying, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who I am. That's what this means. I am who I am. That's an important reframing of how Moses is to think about this task that God has for him. Moses is frequently portrayed in this section of Scripture. I maybe even have preached it as such at times as being just stubborn and obstinate and lazy. He just doesn't, he doesn't want to go. But he's not saying, I won't do this. He's saying, I can't do this. Over and over again, he is saying, there is no way that Moses the goat herder can do anything like what you are asking me to do. He's riddled with self-doubt, a self-doubt which comes out over and over again, really all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. And he can only see the enormity of the task he's being asked to do in light of his inadequacies, in light of his ordinariness. But God will say to him over and over again, it's not who you are, it's who I am. Which brings us to the second piece of this verse. He says, tell them I am has sent you. And that's actually the answer to the question, who shall I say sent me? I am has sent you. And the meaning of it's far deeper than we'll ever be able to plumb. And I'm not just talking about this morning in a sermon. I'm talking about ever. It's one of the most profound statements ever made. But skimming the surface of it, God is simply saying to Moses, I am the sum total of all things. I am all of it. There were other gods in the pantheon of the time who had a responsibility for fertility or, or crops or, or the sky. Their domain was limited. But the one speaking to Moses and the one who would deliver Israel is, is not a god bound by a section of real estate. He is not a He's not a tribal God. He's all of it. I am the sum total of all things. He is saying, I'm not ordinary, I'm extraordinary. And so the best way for him to say it is to simply say, I am. And he'll remind Moses of that over and over again in this encounter as Moses continues to just launch, to hurl back at God these doubt-filled objections to what God is calling him to do. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Moses says, they'll never believe me. And God replies, it's not who you are. It's who I am. And he does it by giving him miraculous signs that Moses is to use to prove that God sent him to Israel and to Pharaoh, Moses objects, well, I'm slow of speech and tongue in chapter 4, likely referring to some kind of deficiency in his speech, maybe stuttering. It's conjecture. We don't know. But it's essentially his way of saying, I'm not a good leader. I don't, I don't lead people well. People don't rally to my cause. God says, 
I've made you just as you are for my purposes. It's not who you are. It's who I am. Finally, Moses practically collapsing under his sense of inadequacy just outright says, send somebody else. And God says, how about no? I've provided you your brother Aaron to help you, but you are going to go. End of discussion. Because it's not about who you are. It's about who I am. And I want you to see how strongly he says this in verse 16. Speaking of Aaron's benefit to him, he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, since you don't feel like yours works well. But then notice this, and you shall be as God to him, to Pharaoh. Not as a God, but you shall be like me to him. It's just essentially God saying, once again, it's not about you. It's not about who you are. It's about who I am. In calling Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, despite his persistent self-doubt, God is showing us that he calls imperfect, ordinary, average, doubt-filled people to do extraordinary things in accomplishing his perfect plans for their lives. I began today's message by observing that we live in a world where everyone and everything is special. We trumpet it all the time. It's what we look like in our social media posts. Special, okay? So if that's the case, why are we so unhappy? There is actually a report released annually every year since 2012. I kid you not. It's called the World Happiness Report. And it's administered by Gallup. And respondents are asked to rank various aspects of their lives on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being you don't want to know. 10 being best life imaginable. The findings are ranked by country. And every year... America has a a tough time cracking the top 20. This past year, we were at 16. To quote one observational comedian whose work I appreciate, everything is amazing, no one is happy. Without doing too deep of a dive into the findings, the report shows that happiness is directly tied to our connection to others. In other words, we are happiest if we perceive that we matter to someone. And I think this in part is what drives the desire to convince others that we are not ordinary. We want to matter to people. We want our lives to count for something big. But the fact is, all of us suspect that we are ordinary. All of us suspect that we don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Thus, in a country like the United States with every bell and whistle, hundreds of millions of people are not fundamentally happy. But what if the path to making a difference 
isn't to paper over our average lives with fake social media uh, posts and and bravado in our interactions, but is instead found in embracing our ordinariness. What if our commonness is the very best thing that God finds most useful? What if it's the only thing, that common aspect of our lives, that He will use for His purpose for us? I think that's exactly what this episode in Moses' life shows us in two very clear ways. By showing us our debilitating relationship with the ordinariness in our lives and what God does in response. Let me give you those two things. First, this episode shows us that in our fear of being ordinary, we drift, but God pursues. We drift, but God pursues. What do I mean by say we drift? I'm referring to the tendency that most of us have to just go through the motions of our lives. Now, we do our best to make sure that that's not as dreary as it sounds, but the bottom line is is that we tend to settle into the acceptance of the horizons of our lives, especially spiritually, especially in the things of God, and then we quietly give up ever going past them. To be clear, I'm not talking about godly contentment which the Bible says is a treasure. What I'm talking about is just settling into the thinking that I'm just a fill-in-the-blank. I'm just a dad, just a mom, just a student, just a worker, just a retiree. I'm just a goat herder. And so we're never open, never even consider that God might want something more from our lives than that. I think student ministry is extraordinarily important, and I think that you can be an effective student minister regardless of your age. One of my former adult leaders took over my old student ministry at my church in Tennessee in the 90s, and he's still leading that ministry effectively in his 60s. Now, he's probably mentally ill, but... (laughs) But he's doing that. But when I was in my late 20s, I was drifting in student ministry. I was just a student minister and was drifting, scared to death of stepping into the lead pastor role because I was riddled with self-doubt and maybe, just maybe, a little bit of immaturity. I was embracing the just part of my life. But God pursued me. Not as kindly as he did Moses. I wish I'd been sent a bush that wouldn't burn. It seemed that I got thrown into the fire when I was at my point of wrestling. But coming out of that time of trial, which was mostly of my own making, God had convinced me that it wasn't about who I am. It's about who he is. Now, here's the thing. You'd think that self-doubt and quiet acceptance would be eradicated from our lives over time once we have this realization, but that wasn't the case in Moses' life, as I've already alluded to. In the books that follow Exodus, we see this self-doubt creep back into Moses' life time and time again, and it hasn't been eradicated in my life either, but that's okay. And you know why? Because the piece about being a pastor that fills me with the most self-doubt 
Is the place that God works supernaturally in me the most often? What piece is that? None of your business. <laughs> I mean, if I were to tell you, you'd be naturally inclined because you're good people to try to encourage me. and I just, I don't need it. I really don't. I really don't need it. I've come to terms with it. I mean, I'm, I'm good at, at, at just kind of letting God have my inadequacy. The point I'm making is that I'm prone to wonder and settle and drift. This is human, to just be just. But God pursued me. God pursues all of us to make our lives what only He can make them to be. We drift, God pursues. And the second thing I want to show you is that we doubt. God prepares. Moses the goat herder didn't see any way that he could be who God was calling him to be. He didn't see that he could be a leader. He doubted his eloquence as a speaker. He doubted his ability to be able to get people to jump on board. How could he possibly be the kind of person that God was calling him to be? And yet, with every doubt expressed, God prepares a way to transcend them. Don't know my name? Here it is. Doubt your ability to lead? Here's some miraculous signs that'll get people moving. Doubt your speaking ability? Here's Aaron to help you. Over and over again, we see God providing Moses with what he needs to be able to be just a goat herder, and it had been going on his entire life unseen and unknown by him. I came to the realization that God was calling me to be a pastor the summer between my sophomore year and junior year in high school at church camp in Oklahoma. I've never really doubted it since then. But let me tell you something. There were more than a few people at First Baptist Church, Tahlequah, Oklahoma, when I came back and said, I'm going to be a pastor. and went, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and here's why. And I said this earlier because, um, and, and, and people laughed. Um, and that actually proves my point. Here's what you need to know about the real me. And again, you're likely not going to believe it, but that helps me prove my point. At my core, I'm an introvert. I really am. I, I, I mean, I'm comfortable and, and silly to the point of irritation <laughs> with my people. Um, but, but left to my own devices, I don't meet people well. I have a, a hard time making eye contact, and I would prefer to remain anonymous on the back row. In fact, if when I go on sabbatical again in five years or so, if you're wanting to find me on a Sunday morning, look at the back row of a church near my house. That's where I'll be. On the Sunday, they recognized graduating high school seniors at my home church. My best friend's mother, her name's Diane Jarvis, came up to me and said, when you came back from church camp two summers ago and said that God was calling you into ministry, I said to myself, God, I don't know what that boy thought he heard, but he didn't hear go into ministry. And then, this will build you up, she listed all the reasons that she knew she was right. She said, you weren't a natural leader. 
You're shy around new folks. You have a hard time making eye contact with people. But then she said, boy, was I wrong. And she began to tell me all the ways that she had seen me change since I said yes to a ministry call. She began to see me emerge as a leader. I began to meet people better. I could look people in the eye most of the time. (laughs) That's still a struggle. What she was observing was how God prepares ordinary folks to do his work in ways that we might not ever guess for ourselves. Essentially, what God has done to help me do what I do for a living is make me a functional extrovert. I'm still the guy who would prefer to just lay low and at the back and be quiet. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. Just last weekend, we had to go to a fundraiser for her school. She's an elementary school principal, and she had to coax me knowing that I would be miserable the entire time. Don't make me go. (laughs) Please, don't make me. But I did, and I was, you know, able to deal with the misery until it was time to go home. I, I, I promise you that when I retire... I'll, I'll be the guy who is anonymous laborer in a church somewhere. I just, I don't, I don't do this naturally well. But what I will miss when those days come is God's empowerment of me in a way that is completely outside of me to bring me to fulfill his purposes for my life and for him to get credit and not me. The bottom line is that we are all ordinary people when it comes to being able to do the work of God. And that's an important caveat there. It would be very easy for us in this modern age to turn what I am am saying into a TED talk where I'm essentially saying you can be anything you want to be. Listen to me. No, you can't. No, you can't. But God is equipped to make you all he wants you to be. Sometimes that puts you up front. Sometimes it's laboring in the back. But God is able to equip you to be what he wants you to be. And it is probably in the area of your life where you feel most inadequate, where God is starting to try to do some work. So what do we do from here? Well, apart from the obvious, stay close to Jesus. Pursue pursue Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It may require you to, in addition, say yes to some things that you wouldn't naturally be inclined to do. We're allergic to being uncomfortable in modern America. And so if that makes me uncomfortable or I don't feel good at doing that or I don't feel I could be successful or extraordinary in doing it, I won't do it at all. But it may be that God wants to work in that area. Most of us, you see, are happy to give God our strengths. But more often than not, he wants to use our weaknesses because that's where we get blessed and where he gets glory. And then, 
Let God pursue you in those weaknesses until he shows you which of those he wants to use. Just be warned, again, it may involve you having to say yes to some opportunities where you really are way, way out over your skis before he shows you where it is he wants you to work. God prepared me to be a public speaker in spite of my introverted tendencies. I grew up in a radio station that my dad owned and managed, and my high school job was that of a DJ. Some people sack groceries. I played Johnny Cash. That's what I did. But that's sitting alone in a room with a microphone. I'm able to, it's lots of, of radio personalities are introverts because they don't have to engage people visually. And that's what I was doing. So left my own devices. I would have never stood in front of a group of people to speak. The most terrified I've ever been, and I'll be 57 in, in a few months, the most terrified in 57 years I've ever been is the moments before I preached for the first time. I was literally shaking, uncontrollably shaking. But God pursued me, and he mixed my preparation that I didn't even know was preparation and fear to use me for his purposes. That's my example of God using me in a place of weakness. But let's also understand this. There are some aspects of following Jesus that will never be comfortable. That doing make you always uncomfortable, but you're required to do them in order to be faithful. I'd imagine that for most of us, talking about our faith with someone in the hopes that we'll have an opportunity to lead them to the Lord will always make us uncomfortable. Talk to the introverts in the room, and they will tell you that in spades. We'll always offer objections filled with self-doubt and beg God, like Moses, send somebody else. But it's very likely that the one he has set apart to lead your family and friends out of spiritual bondage is you. There is nobody else. And he's preparing you to do it. So go ahead, folks. Don't hide from being ordinary. Admit it. Embrace it. Most of us will live out the majority of our lives unnoticed by anyone but our closest family and friends. That's just true. I get the perspective of a pastor leading funerals time and time again, and I can't tell you how many times I've led the funeral of people who passed away in their 90s who had been integral to the life of a church for decades, and there's very few people left alive to come to remember their lives. You pass like that, folks. So what you need to do, what I'm trying to do and what I'm thinking Moses' example is calling us to do is to say, God, I, I, I am left to my own devices, nothing special. But you can use all of that to accomplish your perfect purpose for my life. And some people may remember that purpose and some people may never know, but it will make a difference in the halls of eternity. We are ordinary people, but we have an extraordinary God. Let's pray.